You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we converse in the studio with Tibetan Buddhist nun Ani Samten Palmo, a monastic at Lotus Mountain Gampa. Born in Switzerland, she's a student of Lama Lena, a.k.a. Yeshe Ketup, and uh, Lama Wangdor Rinpoche, both teachers of direct mind perception, meditation, and lineage holders of several Tibetan Buddhist traditions. Anila has been a monastic since 2001. She offers one-on-one teachings and sessions with smaller groups. We'll get started with that show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called Short Tales for a Vial, English Music of the 17th Century, for Viola da Gamba and Lyra Vial. Performed by Vittorio Gialmi, this piece by Thomas Mace is called A Labyrinth. This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. Great to be here. This week on the show, we converse in the studio with Tibetan Buddhist nun Ani Samten Palmo. Ani Samten Palmo is a monastic at Lotus Mountain Gampo and a student of Lama Lena, a.k.a. Yeshe Ketup, and Lama Wangdor Rinpoche of Tsao Pema, India. Tsopena, India, both teachers of the direct mind perception, meditation, and lineage holders of several Tibetan Buddhist traditions. Anila has been a monastic since 2001. She offers one-on-one teachings and sessions with smaller groups. Her teachings focus primarily on mind training and how we create our own reality in combination with open-heartedness, compassion, and connecting with other beings. This includes some emphasis on the somatic experience of trauma and emotions to help in the process of letting go and release. Such an approach benefits our ability to open up and stay in the moment and to stay in the heart. A native of Lucerne, Switzerland, 
Hanila holds a Doctor of Chiropractic degree from the Life University in Marietta, Georgia, and currently lives in Guerneville, California. Ani Samten Palma, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you for having me. We're delighted to have you, and uh, we will start as we usually do uh, with a first-time guest, and that is to invite you to cast your memory back to youth and childhood and reflect on any experiences that, in retrospect, uh, invite you to um, identify those experiences as having a connection to the direction that your life would later take with spiritual practice. Uh, thank you for the question. And as I'm just hearing the question, I know that my journey started very early on. Mm -hmm. And it started, um, I didn't really speak till I was 12 years old. Mm. Wow. I couldn't communicate. And uh, so I kind of lived in my own world. And within my world, I actually had these beings, including Mother Mary, that I was very close to. Mm. And anything related to the environment, to family, all of that was a little more removed for me. Um, also happened to um, occur that my mother had a severe stroke when I was six years old and then was coming, getting mostly, mostly was living in a hospital for a long time. Mm. And so I ended up going to different families. So that really left me within my own world and still mm. not really being able to communicate. And I think that was really the foundation for me to, um, to stay within that spiritual realm. When I started to speak between the years, um, between 12 and 14, my world ended up from being a colorful, colorful loving world into a black and white. And huh. I felt I was losing that connection. Hmm. And for my teenage years, I felt really depressed. And the only thing I always wanted to do was going back to that time, mm -hmm. to that connection, which now I communicated with people, but I lost that other world. And um, I think from... Um, trying to adjust with that new world, <clears throat> trying to figure out what I want to do, going through the teenage years, <clears throat> um, and then eventually figuring out I want to come and study in the U.S. Uh, to become a chiropractor. But something was still missing. I really was missing that, that connection. And I... Uh, so so the me let me, I'll just interrupt briefly. The, the, the metaphor or more than metaphor, perhaps, of the full-color world to the black-and-white world, um, um, it's understandable why you'd want to return to, to that. Was there... Um, uh, did you feel safe and secure in that world as a child up to the age of 12 in that more colorful world? Well, my colorful world after the age of 12, or 12 between 12 and 14, turned black and white. Mm -hmm. And I lost that connection. Mm -hmm. And um, so my, I think my whole striving later on, especially after the first few years when I was starting in the 20s, was really to try to find back to that yeah. world. Yeah, I'm interested in just that transition from the uh, uh, world of color to the world of black and white. Was that, uh, was it the utilization of language and, yeah. the, and the speaking before that time? Because being at, at 12 you had um you know a more developed mind and you know an, an understanding did you have language and not utilize it or how, how did that 
how did that transition work? I know I had language. I was able to read and write. I went to school, uh, okay. so I know that was there. Um, but I wasn't able to express. And then because I was kind of growing up uh, away from normal environment, because I didn't communicate, I really didn't learn how to give that okay. out. So, so, mm. so it's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, many of us uh, will have experience of like the kid in school who doesn't speak or something who seems very withdrawn. So mm -hmm. you could you could go to school, but everyone sort of uh, thought of you as the kid who had problems or... Uh, well, pretty much the community idiot. Yeah. You know, because uh, because I didn't speak. Well, and kids in those at that age can be very cruel, yeah. very uh, hard. And unfortunately, I didn't have that support because my mother was also in the hospital a lot. Oh, of course, So yeah. I was in different families, and I really didn't have that cover of support. Um. And so I think what I went to was that support of the spiritual world. Hmm. And so that's where I received my connection. And Mother Mary, that female energy, was really very much alive within my world. Well, I, I know that Switzerland is a very beautiful country, you know, uh, physically. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if the natural world was a part of that sense of connection that you're, that you're referring to as a child. Or was that not, not necessarily associated with that colorful world that you're talking about? Um, no, I don't think it's directly associated with okay. it. However, I, I have clear memories mm -hmm. of going to a school within that time mm -hmm. uh, with other kids from, and I know that sounds really a little bit out there, but that's what my memory you is. You mean in that realm? In that realm. Uh, um, uh. With other schools from different places in the world. Hmm. And I remember one girl from my community that I recognized who, when she was uh, 15, killed herself. Hmm. And obviously also was on the side of, of, uh, of the society. And um, so, but I remember we were together in that educational environment in that whatever world that was. Hmm. And I remember we were going, we were taken out to a pond and there was all this plankton swimming within the pond and so clearly I could literally see and I don't know how that teaching went because it wasn't verbally but we could literally see world within worlds within worlds within mm -hmm. the plankton and it was so clear that within that we're just that this pond is just on a little blank which, of course, is just on the whole area of our what we see in the sky. And that sky, what we see, is just a little pond somewhere else in a different world. So it goes endlessly up and endlessly down. Mm -hmm. And I remember some of those teachings when I was in that world. Oh. So I know a lot of that science now. When looking back, I wonder how much was fantasy, how much was made up. And yet, I remember those kind of teachings. Interesting. So I, I don't have a total. I kind of put my hands on exactly where that all fits in, but mm -hmm. that was my experience. So, so I'm curious, uh, at what point, and what was it like to decide to speak? I'm not sure whether I made a, a direct choice to speak or what prompted that. I don't have that memory. Um, I think in some ways I wanted to belong, mm -hmm. you know, I wanted to express, and so I guess I ended up doing that. Um, however, um, I found it 
connecting with that environment that I was in. I miss that compassion. I miss that color within that other world. Yeah. And I ended up having quite a, a lot of depression within my teens because of it, because I really wanted to go back, I, you know, but then I didn't know how to go back. Mm-hmm. I just, kind of was mourning. So you had, you had a real sense of a loss, and, yes, and, 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 it's, and it's one no one else could even uh, begin to approach or and understand. And I couldn't even express it. Yeah. Um, because people wouldn't understand what I was talking about. So, so that's that's interesting, and I'm wondering if your decision as, that you mentioned earlier to go to the United States had some. It, it would be removing you from the context that where you were finding all these difficulties. And I, did you see that as a way to to start moving back towards? This uh, um, uh, world where you experienced compassionate connection in some way, or was there some other motivation for that? It was a total different motivation coming here. Mm -hmm. I uh, was already uh, studying alternative therapies in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. I actually ended up having uh, studying electronic and uh, um, mechanical and engineering, Ah. and I uh, have a degree from Switzerland in that. However, I was really more interested in the biomechanics, Mm -hmm. and so eventually I met some people who are chiropractors, and they told me you have to come over here to study and all of that and Mm. somehow uh, it worked that I ended up coming over here and study uh, chiropractic and I went first into South Carolina and then went into Georgia and finished uh, that degree and became a chiropractor. Um, However, going back to Switzerland at the time, um, which I could have done, would have been much more challenging because Switzerland has all these rules on what you need to have within your educational background, Mm. and I was missing two years of history. And so I would actually have to go back to school and study two more years of history before I even could then go into internship. Even so, mm. I did already all of that stuff here in the U.S. I see. So, so that would have been an obstacle, an obvious obstacle. It was an obvious ob- obstacle, yes. So I ended up staying here. Mm-hmm. And um, I also um, married a, somebody here when I was in school, mm-hmm. and so an American. And so we stayed in the States and ended up practicing. Um, however... Um, the, I, that's where, during that time when I'm really starting to ask more questions because d- during the school time, during the study time, you were so involved yeah. with what you needed to study. Mm-hmm. There was no time for me to really go anywhere else. So I ended up, after I finished my studies, then I felt really that uh, the push from inside, now I really needed to follow what, what actually was going on when I was a child. I, I, I really see. wanted to, to find out more. Plus, I also wanted to really connect back to that world, mm-hmm. and I was trying to kind of see how I could do that. And what were some of the ways that you experimented with finding that, that sense of re- reconnecting again? Well, earlier on, even when I was in Switzerland, I was um, involved with him be, being a Baha'i. I was a Baha'i in oh, those days okay. hmm. um, because I really believe in um, a lot of their principles. Mm-hmm. But for me, I'm much more inclined to go deeper. 
and go deeper into meditation and mind studies and all that. And so I, I needed more than, than just doing the studying the books and doing the teachings and mm -hmm. doing firesides. Um, and within the Baha'i tradition, they don't really recommend becoming a monastic or really mm -hmm. focusing on that too much. They want to, you know, have family and, mm -hmm. yeah. and all that. And that's wonderful. They're having wonderful principles, but for me, I needed more. Did the Baha'i faith have any sense of meditation or practice? In the, what, they yeah. have wonderful prayers, but again, for me, it wasn't deep enough. Yeah. I felt like I wanted to, do, to go much deeper. So how did you find your way, eventually at least, to uh, Tibetan Buddhism? Oh, that was actually much, much <laughs> later. Uh, okay. Well, then fill in the steps yeah. uh, before that. Yeah, so I'm st I st still was searching, and eventually uh, I had dreams about going different places and uh, had dreams about moving to New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, eventually what I did, and uh, had a school there, a uh, massage therapy school and my clinic and uh, really did a little more techniques that are a little more were a little more on the edge mm -hmm. and involved spirituality and uh, spiritual healing and i ended up getting divorced from 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 my first from my husband having a partner that was yaki uh, which yaki is a tribe american mm -hmm. tribe and he was yaki yaki curandero and we were together for 10 years and so that's where i also got more involved with some mm. of that kind of spirituality Mm -hmm. Living in New Mexico, and he, and he was, uh, uh, I think someone was telling me this. Uh, 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 he was the real deal, right? He was like a, uh, a full practitioner in the Do in the Don Juan uh, uh, yes. uh, style. That yes, and there were events that I kind of scratched my head about, and uh, you know, I I'm not, I cannot wrap my mind about that. But whatever you say. And then later on, I figured out, you know, having verification from other sources and, uh, you know, like he was ta taught by his dead grandmother uh, when he was four years old, he started to be taught in his backyard by he and his brother. Mm -hmm. And I just never really could wrap my, you know, I'm Swiss, I'm much more, you know, in my head. And I couldn't wrap my mind around how his dead grandmother could actually teach him all of that. And so, uh, but, but obviously he was quite gifted. And so years, years later, his brother, which we never really had direct contact, but one day he walked into our office. And um, he, my partner at the time, he was with a, cl a client. And so I ended up sitting with him and asked him, oh, you know, about what, who he is and what's happening. And he told me the exact same story, that he and his brother were taught by the dead grandmother. He was four years older than my partner, so my partner was four years old at the time, and he forgot basically most of it, but Pablo obviously was able to keep it. And so he wanted to bring his daughter to us so he, she, she could be taught by, by him, huh. uh, which was really interesting. And I really, oh, that is interesting. So there must be something really true to that, because I couldn't wrap my head around that before. And... Um, I mean, it's interesting that, uh, particularly with your childhood experience, uh, you, you, uh, it was probably more accessible to you than it might be to someone else, uh, mm. that, that, uh, th that possibility of having a discarnate energy having such an influence. Yes, yeah. Uh, but it took some time till I really heard his brother talk about it. Huh. And there was no conspiracy between the two. And, uh, yeah, it was definitely an amazing experience hearing that. And and so, uh, 
Yeah, so I was really, from all of that, being within that energy of a lot of that um, tribal energy, um, I ended up actually wanting to go deeper and deeper, and I realized that I really, I'm not really as connected to my own heart as I need to be. And so I met somebody who had a, mon a monastery, and he was teaching Advaita. Mm -hmm. And so he told me when I would come to him uh, three times a year for a month, he could teach me. And I decided that's what I want to do. And I created a, a way that I could get away from my work for a, a month at a time. And so after I went the first month and came back, and I knew that's absolutely the path I need to take, uh, my partner at the time told me, well, when you go again, you don't need to come home. And I had to make a decision. What do I really want in my life? Mm. I first thought, well, he's not really serious. And then after a time, he was just holding on to that. And so I was, uh, had to make a decision what I wanted to do. And I was given the option to come into the monastery full time. And so that's what I took. So uh, we actually were originally planning to get married that one day, July 15th, uh, and, and uh, 2001. And that was actually the day when I entered the monastery. And I thought that was really quite interesting that it had ended up having the same date. Hmm. And so uh, I ended up being seven years in that Advaita monastery and studied intensively. Uh, it was a small monastery, but uh, it was... This was in New, New Mexico? That was, no, that was in California. That's the oh. way I ended up coming to California. Oh, I see. And um, Where in California? It was in Orangeville. Oh, California okay. and it doesn't exist at this time anymore mm -hmm. but um, I was there till 2007 and uh, had some really interesting intense training in yoga different forms of yoga and mind training uh, and yet I found after a while the way it was taught wasn't really getting me it got me to a certain point but I felt I got stuck and I couldn't really go further and so I needed to find another way Mm -hmm. And I was really more attached to my own journey than I was to a teacher. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking around and uh, left the monastery, even so I still was, I, I considered myself a monastic, I still had valved, so I still lived that life. But I was looking, um, searching for something deeper, you know, something, to the next path, the next step. And eventually I met, uh, went to a teaching, uh, which was quite, I expected a different teaching, and I was literally be late. Uh, came a little late, which is very unusual for me. Um, but so when I went into that room, there was somebody, there was a drone in there, and somebody was sitting on there, and uh, the whole room was filled with people except one chair right in the middle of everybody. And so he waved me in and told me to go sit down there, and so I did. And I walked into an empowerment, and I didn't mm. literally know what it was. And so I couldn't leave. I was literally stuck within those people. I was already late, so I didn't feel I could leave. And so I was just waiting it out. And, uh, but as the empowerment went on, I could feel something opening in my heart. Mm. And I was really curious about it. I felt I needed to follow that. I needed to search more. What is that? What's going on? I just knew I needed to, to follow that. And so I uh, ended up uh, going to a teaching that was given afterwards and um, was really, really felt connected. And I know now there was some karmic connection that was awakening 
that I had from past lives practicing Tibetan ceremonies and mm -hmm. Tibetan practices. And at that time, when I went in that ceremony, that's when something opened up and that memory came up. And so I ended up starting to study with Lama Lotru in, uh, at KDK in San Francisco. And I was still in Sacramento at the time, uh, but driving there and studying there and ended up very early on going to a Nunye retreat. A Nunye retreat is a practice that takes two days to do, and it's basically a prayer and fasting practice. And you basically eat one meal a day, and you chant 10 hours a day. And uh, so it takes two days to fulfill, fulfill that. And every year he does an eight uh, Nunya practice, which is a 16, 17-day practice. And uh, early on, before I really know much about Tibetan Buddhism, I said, oh, meditation, I like that. I'm, that's really what warms me up. Um, I'm going to attend that retreat. And so I did. And as soon as we started that retreat, I knew that I will do 108 Nunya retreat. It was like this memory. Even so, I couldn't even know Tibetan or speak Tibetan or even read the text. I just knew that's my practice. I needed to follow that. And so, um, but of course, doing 108 Nunya retreats, that takes like 217 days. And you need support to do that. As you need somebody who, you know, kind of prepares the meal and takes care of you while you're doing all the practices. And I wasn't really seeing where and how and I could do that at the time. Uh, it was 2008, 2009. The economy gets really bad. And I uh, also realized I really would like to switch my vows to a Tibetan Buddhist nun. And eventually in 2009, that's what's happening. And Mingyu Rinpoche was giving me the first vows. Mingyu Rinpoche is a very renowned tulku in the Tibetan tradition. And he gave me my first monastic vows in the Tibetan tradition. Mm. And uh, the economy went really bad at the time. And so I ended up in a place where I didn't really know where to go or what to do uh, financially as well. And somebody said, you know, uh, you're better off when I, when I help to support your retreat. And you go into retreat and we trying to support you outside. And so that's what was organized. I ended up doing a 270 day. 217 days solo retreat by myself uh, actually right here at Goldrich Sangha uh, and with the support of the Lama there and the support of the people who then would you know once a week would bring me the food to a door so I didn't see anybody in that time and uh, so fulfilling that memory that I had and I think that valve that I have to do that 217 days of practice once in my lifetime and so that's what I did hmm. um, coming out of the practice again I was uh, studying uh, st studying different lineages I went to India and got my uh, full uh, my novice valves in the Tibetan, Tibetan tradition we only have novice valves so I got them from uh, Tai Situ and I spent some time in India and with Karmapa and then came back and I just had a lot of questions that I couldn't get answered and I went to different teachers including Gautam Rinpoche and then I met Lama Lina 
And Lama Lina um, is a teacher who is uh, direct mind teachings. And when I started to hear her teaching, something just totally clicked. And not just did it click, but also those teachings that I received in my childhood literally made sense. Mm. It just was kind of that memory kind of came together. And I also, all my life, I had visions um, seeing a, a circle of wise beings around the fire. And I, over, over my lifetime, I started to come in closer and closer and closer to that circle. And when I met Lama Lina, I was right by the beginning in the circle. And I had gone that vision coming up. And after a while, she invited me to come with her to India, to go with her to India. Oh, so you, you met her here in the United States? I met her here in Karistoga, where oh, my okay. first teaching was with her. I see. And, um, yeah, and so I ended up then having more and more teachings from her and took her as my teacher. Mm -hmm. And then I went to India mm -hmm. uh, with her. And uh, when I went up to the caves, with, uh, she has a cave community there. Uh, Lama Wangdo has the cave community. That's where she studied. When I went up into the cave community, I literally could see the place of my vision, where yeah. all these white wisdom beings are around the fire. And I could see the rock formations. Hmm. And I knew I was home. I knew I was connected with that community. And um, after that, um, those visions kind of stopped, but I felt like they brought me home. And so I ended up doing retreat up in the caves and um, spent some multiple times. I went to India and, um, you know, continued studying uh, different aspects of, of Buddhism. Uh, but within the Sachin tradition, and that's usually the uh, mind tradition, there is, you, you're literally starting to go beyond belief system concepts and ideas. And you're starting to see that everything we do, everything we, we have comes out of our mind and it's created by our own thinking and the thinking is created by our own experiences. And so we're creating literally our world according to our own experiences. And uh, your world and my world, they're all different. I don't really know on how your world looks like, nor do I, do you know how my world looks like. Uh, and that's, it, it's like being a prism, you know. Uh, the light, the sunlight comes through the prism, and then the prism fractions it out into the different lights. And so we all are like prisms. The light comes through us, and we are, we are all also that light but we are also the prism that creates the light. And that light of that prism through our experiences can have little cracks and little injuries and little things that we have through our childhood, through our experiences in life. And then that kind of brings out the light into a little bit of different shape. And so it brings out nuances between us. Nuances that sometimes are not as nice. Experiences that we have and we think they're actually real and that's really happening and we're experiencing because there is a world out there, there's a world in here and we cannot differentiate that, that what is out there actually is within us. And so we think this is real and we're acting accordingly. Hmm. or we are reacting according right. to those events. Um, and so that's kind of being on that triangle between uh, being a victim, a hero, and a villain. And we just jump around that over and over and over again till we're connecting to our hearts. 
and say, you know, there is so much, so much more than just a triangle. So how come we are going on the triangle? What kicks in the triangle? And how can we get off the triangle? How can we be in a way that is uh, much more just letting that energy flow through us to that pure prison? And not, the, not those cracks and those little injuries within the prison that we all picked up in our lives. Okay. So, that, so that would be um, part of the, the um, excuse me, the, I need the, the direct mind perception training. Is, is, that, is that kind of the basis of, what, of the, what you were just describing with the prism metaphor? Well, what I'm describing in there is that, you know, in, within Buddhism, um, we're seeing that we all have problems, we all have issues, we all have um, things that we're not doing so well. We're hurting other people, we're hurting ourselves, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to fix that. We're not good enough, we want to be better. We are not um, have enough of this, we want to have more of that. So we're kind of trying to con co um, correct ourselves um, on that level, on that physical level. But mm -hmm. in pure mind perception, we see that really it's all mind created. Mm -hmm. And so realizing that what my thinking has created is what I believe, a belief system that I'm not good enough. And that belief system also is, is, is coming together from um, our environment, from our culture, telling us to do all of that, uh, or believing a certain things. So all these belief systems are literally made up. They're not really what is there. And yet we are living within that world that we are, have created mm -hmm. and, and hurting ourselves and hurting other people instead of living from the heart. When we go through our heart and not through the mind and just literally have the energy flow through us and there is this flow of energy you can feel, then you, you're not really jumping on, oh, that's not good enough or that should be better and that person is not good enough. We are much more content. And when we're happy and content, we are not as judgmental. Mm -hmm. You know, and when we're not that judgmental, we cannot kind of release, we release holding on to a, a mind that tells us we need to be a certain way. Mm -hmm. Because we're all made exactly the way we need to be. But we are, not, we are not accepting that. We are trying to change that. So how do you see the paradox of practice then, where you're describing a context where we recognize or try to practice letting go of uh, trying to fix or trying to be better or trying to change what is. And yet we have all these uh, practices that seem to have an intent to uh, do something. And one, certainly it was my experience in entering a spiritual practice. My an initial attempt, uh, my initial intent was to fix something. Yes. And yet paradoxically the practice isn't about fixing something. So how do you see that? Well, you know, most people come into that in order to fix something because we have an intent, like you said, something is not good enough, something hurts, we want to we wanna change something. But eventually when you really study on how we perceive the world and how we create the world that we're in, um, then we're starting to see that it actually is not on the, pa on the physical level of changing it. We're not changing it out there. 
we're needing to change it on how we're holding our thoughts and our belief systems and our concepts. Realizing that my belief system that you need to be a certain way and when you're not that way, I'm getting upset. Um, doesn't have anything to do with you. It has to do with that my belief system that I'm holding on to. So, okay, so in a sense then that, that, that initial impulse that wants to fix something in a way can be redirected then towards uh, not fixing myself as this sort of exterior thing, but rather changing the context of how I experience fixing. Yes, and how we experiencing fixing is by realizing that we are creating those belief systems by thoughts, and we all have thoughts, and thoughts, uh, thoughts are c they come and go, and we put them together, and then we have a, a sentence, and then we have a belief system, then we have a concept, and we're holding on to them, and we don't want to let go of them, and that's then what creates our worlds. When we are seeing on how we're creating those belief systems, it's much easier to let go of them. And then living from the heart. When I see something, I know within my heart what to do. And when I'm living without those uh, ideas and belief systems that tell me, oh, I need to do this, or I need to do that, or it's proper to do that, I have all these limitations that I'm putting myself under and literally not living what is, what is in my heart. So... Um you talked about how how um, much of your path was about going back to what was so nurturing or or uh, positive in your experience as mm -hmm. a child, and so <clears throat> excuse me. So I'm wondering how um, your understanding of how you experienced the world as a child was heart-based as opposed to um, the belief systems that you were just taught, the, the, you know, the uh, mind-based mind um, lenses through which, you, through which uh, we view reality. Um, so do, do, you, do you now have the sense that um, when you were a child, you you're not speaking had some kind of relationship to this ability up until the age of 12 or 12 to 14 to um to actually um rest in a place that was more connected to the world does that make sense I uh, yes it makes sense what you're asking and i don't think i was conscious enough in that time to really say, oh, I'm living from the heart. Or I'm no, I'm asking in retrospect, yeah. obviously. I, I think, yes, I think I was definitely more connected in, into a different energy, mm -hmm. um, which is difficult to explain, but it's like a holding, mm -hmm. um, a nurturing. Mm -hmm. Colorful. That's kind of well. The mother feeling, Mary, the mother you know? Mary that you energy yeah. that you mentioned would have those characteristics, right? Yes. Yeah. Definitely. But it's not just her. It's a whole. It, there were other mm -hmm. beings as well. Um, and then that educational aspect. It was. It was much more. It was holding. It was caring. Mm -hmm. um, yes. And and I think. Um, 
I think there was much more spontaneity in there. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm looking, when I'm just going back and look at it, there was so much more spontaneity. There was a lot of play. Mm. There was a lot of a lot of it was taught just in play, play, play. And I think in some ways it's interesting because I feel like going back to play now, mm-hmm. you know, and I haven't totally I'm still working off a lot of those belief system concepts and idea and get stuck. However, I think I'm getting a broader and broader view. And there are a lot of times where I can really be take, you know, really clearly see the difference between, oh, that's just my belief system and really work from an open heart. Um, but now I haven't fully 100% done that. There, I still get stuck in there, too. Hmm. So but that's my journey. Yeah. That is what I'm practicing on. So, so, uh, so, so that's interesting to me. Um, um, that you express that, that that view now because I'm because um, you know one of the one of the questions I've been holding um, for quite a while now because you know we've been doing this show for radio show for eight years which gives me the opportunity to talk to practitioners from all these different traditions mm-hmm. it's been very interesting and and you know that has included lots of Tibetan Buddhist practitioners and 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 I'm still trying to understand how how that has worked for people because clearly it has been of 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 deep utility for a lot for lots of folks. Um, but it's interesting for me to hear you say that play is so important to you now. I don't remember getting that from other Tibetan practitioners. <laughs> so so can you expand on that a bit? Well, I have found that when we play, um, I'm much more relaxed. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have, there are also a lot of studies out there that say that when you play, you learn so much better. Mm. Lots of, there's, there's a lot of psycho- I mean, I've seen a lot of lot psychological studies, in, as, as you say, to support not just the importance of, of that kind of relaxation. Um, I've, uh, you know... Creative artists make the same make the same point, yes. and there are psychological studies that support that. Absolutely, and it's all dealing with opening the heart. Mm-hmm. You know, so that one aspect, I mean, you know, is the mind training. The other aspect is opening the heart, mm-hmm. and how can we really open the heart? You know, and not get stuck with all that going back into the head. Mm-hmm. So I found the more I'm going into my heart, the more I actually like to play. The more I actually like to to sing. I, I started to study uh, singing from the heart, you know, just creating sounds and hearing, hearing what song is within my heart and even going to movements. And mm-hmm. I know that is not very traditional within, uh, especially in a mon- monasticism, you know, in a monasticism you're supposed to be much more serious and all of that. But I have found that that actually more closing the heart and what I need to do is opening the heart mm-hmm. and so um, I have decided to follow the passion, uh, path and really look into that mm-hmm. um, I have been actually studying um, since the last six months with the Hendricks Institute with um, Gay and uh, Katie or Kathleen Hendricks mm-hmm. and they're really um, kind of uh, trying to teach with play Mm-hmm. Uh, movements, somatic movements, and trying to really what's within. Let let's bring it out. Let's let's make it bigger. 
you know, let's see what's really there so you can actually release it instead of not just holding it and holding it. We need to really open up. And within the teaching in Sochin is also opening the heart. So mm -hmm. again, how are we able to do that? Mm -hmm. And so in some ways I have been experimenting with different things. I know for me, just sitting and meditating and being tight doesn't really work. In, within my psyche, I need it to doesn't, have... It doesn't work to open the heart. It doesn't really work to just open the heart. It works with, it does wonderful things in many ways, mm -hmm. but for me, the path has to be opening the heart. Mm -hmm. And so for me, opening the heart is also getting lighter. And with that comes song and movement and, and, and joy and play. And mm -hmm. also play is an interaction. You know, you're starting to interact with other people. And mm -hmm. the energy changes. When you start to make something a play, the energy changes. You know, and it, it becomes so much more open. And, and, and I think that's what we are looking for, is openness, opening the hearts. So you see, like, the contrast with opening the heart is being led by the head, where there's a, um, a contraction based off of an idea. And for, from what I hear you saying, then opening the heart is uh, returning to a kind of spontaneity that is feeling-led. Yes. And that... In a way, then the um, you, you might say that the head follows the heart at that point. So if we express or if we talk, it's because what's coming out is uh, being led by the heart. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think we are too much, especially within the West, we are too much in the mind, and it kind of gives us that contraction. Mm -hmm. And um, and I, uh, of course, I'm Swiss, and I have incredible discipline. And I'm very good <laughs> at contracting myself and not really opening up, you know. Well, I see, I see that as partially a cultural thing, what I have mm -hmm. learned. Um, and so for me, I really needed to go into the opposite. I needed to, to have a different way. And doing some somatic work and some movement uh, really helps me to open up. Are there practices in the uh, Tibetan tradition that uh, facilitate this, or are you having to explore beyond the scope of the tradition? I went and explored outside of the tradition. I know they have llama dances and they do different things, but they're all so strongly choreographed. And mm. I can imagine that when you know that whole thing as a prayer, doing the llama dances, that's wonderful. But for me, I need more spontaneity. Well, maybe maybe those dances are for people who grew up speaking Tibetan and in that in that context. Yes. The the kind of spontaneity you're talking about would be more easily available, and yet for someone not growing up speaking Tibetan, etc., like you or me, um, uh, having having to learn it all would would be the the contraction that you're needing to. Um, uh, go beyond yes and you know i'm a swiss american woman mm -hmm. and um i just feel i have to figure my path out with my own psyche there is you know i'm so grateful for everything i'm learning and have learned within the tibetan tradition mm -hmm. um but i think it really goes so much more beyond that so so this is an interesting question um because uh, we've we've had this conversation with uh, some of our other guests on the show, particularly people coming out of the uh, Tibetan tradition, like uh, Ken McLeod, where 
the question arises as to to what extent is the tradition really tuned to a psyche that's different from let's say the western psyche and what do you do about that how do you how do you you know what what would be a uniquely tuned uh tradition that would be the analog of the tibetan or the vajrayana tradition that would be able to translate those practices effectively for the western psyche given all the ways in which we are raised and the patterns by which we are distorted well, I think the Western mind likes to experiment much more. And so when a teacher tells you to do something, we're trying probably hundred different ways how not to do it before we're actually doing it. And um, so I have found that's why Lama Lina is my teacher. She has spent, she really adapted, she went to India very early when she was young and she adapted basically to Tibetan culture. So she's literally bicultural and she knows uh, how the Western mind works works and how the Tibetan mind works and she can literally switch from one to the other and so a lot of her teachings are you know she often says well for the Tibetans it's this way but for Western it's this way and she knows there is a difference within that so it has really helped me to to switch over to a teacher that is much more versed within that bicultural thing I have found that the Tibetan culture for me personally hasn't really worked as well because it is so heavy um, dominated by men and, and control that um, I don't believe that's the way I personally find my path. I need to be able to explore from within. So, so is there uh, an example you could give? I mean, you, you spoke about how um, Lamalena was, or Lina is... Um, um, able to say this this works for tibetans and this works for westerners is there, is there an example of a, of an area that you could give us that, just to give us a flavor of what uh, what that might what that means well one of the big thing is that of course when you teach a, or ask a tibetan to do something within a practice they just they don't question it they just do it mm-hmm. and of course with us westerners we're trying every other way first why why <clears throat> Why am I doing this? Why are you telling me? Why do I do it this way and not Everything that way? Everything is mind, exactly. And then the mm-hmm. other thing within the Western culture also, we are so, um, we, we don't have enough, enough self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And so we don't really, you know, everything kind of goes back to us and, and, and we are so much more emotionally um, unstable is not the right word, but... Uh, Damaged. Maybe, or just not secure enough, yeah. you know, while the Tibetan, they have a saying that, you know, even the the worst Tibetan ha, really feels good about himself, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, that's an interesting I've, point. I've heard stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think I've heard that uh, from uh, a quote from the Dalai Lama, like uh, the light bulb went out on for him when he was dealing with Westerners, when he finally realized the degree of yes. self-hatred that Westerners uh, yes. have internalized. Absolutely. And so... Um, also, so a lot of the traditional teaching, you know, you have to really uh, look from both sides. Um, there, are, there is one of the teaching where you said, well, you have to do everything, whatever the, the Lama says, and you are the worst person. You have to look at yourself as much worse than anybody else. And then they try to, you know, uh, I just feel this is a teaching that shouldn't even be taught anymore, you know, especially in the West. And yes, they always make, make a big disclaimer and all that but but for western you know especially for western women i think those kind of 
teaching such as not they shouldn't be even brought out you know we teach us something that really helps us to become you know become who we are and, and connect to our hearts you know then then trying to learn um figure out that well that's not really the way they meant it but that's the way it's written um, but it was written in a different time so you have to adjust to that you know, it's like, uh, I think we need to have teachings that really are just to our time. And that can be much more useful uh, for the people yeah, in the, the moment. Uh, in, uh, um, in our own tradition, uh, the, uh, uh, George Gurdjieff was famous for saying that the teaching has to, ta- has to change for the time, place, and people. And that's what I'm hearing you say here. And so um, there's no doubt that traditional Tibetan culture, even that's changing uh, from the, from, you know, 50 or 100 years ago or something like that, um, because a lot of those folks are now, they aren't in Tibet anymore anyway. Uh, some of us, obviously there's still Tibetans in Tibet, but, but there's also lots of Tibetan practi- Buddhist practitioners in India or in, other, or, or in the West and stuff like that. So even for them, it may not be those old those those teachings from an earlier time may not be as appropriate yes and, yeah and 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 so i'm hearing you say that for westerners it's even uh, the change that's needed is even more extreme is that is that a fair i think statement? that is fair but you know that's not necessarily what i see from a lot of the community i think that's just my own opinion because i see mm-hmm. people streaming to those teachings especially when they're done by somebody famous and they just bow and say oh isn't that amazing isn't that there's a kind of uh, um, people lose the judgment when somebody famous is teaching Uh yeah the the word I I like for that is discernment goes away it's not not that they don't have judgments the judgment is oh this is great and and I'm great because I'm or I'm connected to something great but but it's discernment that that I think is important to um, still hold. Absolutely, and I, I see some of that a little bit missing. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, then that's my own personal thing. I think in some ways, you know, it's also then that there's the whole other issue. Maybe we can bring up as well as being a, a Tibetan Buddhist nun in a community or in an area in the West that does not support. Uh, Tibetan nuns at all Mm. you know and uh, how do you hold that you know we are happy supporting nuns in India we're giving all this money to the lamas and they build huge monasteries and all that wealth and yet they you know don't want to really invest into Tibetan nuns so they can study and then also become teachers you know, so that's definitely a little bit an issue with a, a problem they have. So I realized that a few years ago and said, you know what, this is my path. I need to make the best out of it. And I'm, you know, I'm not physically able to do what they require, which is go and have a job and then do all the work at a center and then I still pay for rent. And, um, you know, I figured out that's not why I signed up to become a nun. I really <laughs> was signing up in order to, to take it deeper. You know, for me, this is a journey of a realization. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's what I'm, you know, wherever that leads me. So I'm not here to promote one specific religion. I'm here to, to search and to then live it and um, share what I found. 
So to be a nun then is, as you're, as you conceive it, is primarily, if I'm understanding you correctly, about pursuing your own interior um, exploration and growth. Is that is that is that a fair statement? Are there any other that's, are there other any aspects of it that that you would point to? That's kind of where I have come to, mm-hmm. because there was absolutely no other support. So I had this idea. You know what? Well, why am I none? What is the purpose? And then you know, so I'm I'm just ended up doing my own journey with that, and I dedicated my life to the journey. Um, but no, there are different forms of monastics, and, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, some of the forest monastics, they have a monastery here. The women are now full of monastics. I mean, there's some wonderful things that happen yeah. with that, and um, I think it's fantastic when that's what you're called for to do. Mm-hmm. But that was not really my calling to hold up a 2,500-year tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not really, I see, the calling of the... Um, Buddhist, uh, the Tibetan Buddhist monastics, they usually have a whole area of, you know, they're usually holding on to practices and really practice them so it can be given over to the next generation. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the purpose. Um, But when you don't have the ability to really do that and study that in order then to be taking it over, Mm -hmm. what is left for you to do? You can either disrobe, which most of the Western monastics do, they disrobe because it's not feasible for them to be monastics, Mm -hmm. or then you can decide what else do you want to do with your life. And for for me, this is my dedication to go further and further and deeper. Into into the mystical aspect of life. Well, that's great. Well, I think we're we're about to uh, pause for the uh, break at the hour, but uh, I'm looking forward to continuing uh, hearing you talk about what that means for your life uh, in future. Thank you. You are listening to the Mystical Positivist. I'm your host Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we converse in the studio with Tibetan Buddhist nun Ani Samten. Pomo, a monastic at Lotus Mountain Gampa. Born in Switzerland, she's a student of Lama Lena, a.k.a. Yeshe Ketup, and Lama Wangdor Rinpoche, both teachers of direct mind perception, meditation, and lineage holders of several Tibetan Buddhist traditions. Anila has been a monastic since 2001. She offers one-on-one teachings and sessions with smaller groups. We'll return to our show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called Short Tales for a Vial. English music of the 17th century for Viola da Gamba and Lyra Viol, performed by Vittorio Gielmi. This anonymously authored piece is called Gemmy.
Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we converse in the studio with Tibetan Buddhist nun Ani Samten Palmo, a monastic at Lotus Mountain Gampa. Born in Switzerland, she's a student of Lama Lena, a.k.a. Yeshe Ketup, and Lama Wangdor Rinpoche, both teachers of direct mind perception meditation and lineage holders of several Tibetan Buddhist traditions. Ani Ra has been a monastic since 2001. She offers one-on-one teachings and sessions with smaller groups. So I want to start off the second hour by um, having a conversation about about what it means to, I guess, in one sense, be a, quote, good or, um, to use another word, effective spiritual practitioner. Because a lot of people have the idea that that means you're following a bunch of rules. You're following rules that... Um, perhaps were just suggested by an individual teacher, or it might be rules that you understand the tradition to be um, uh, expressing as as uh, tools to um, achieve certain ends. And the reason I, I, I want to bring this up is because, of course, in the first hour, you know, part of what sh- what you uh, we're saying Anila is this um, this tension uh, that it seemed like you were feeling. You've been fe- you've been experiencing between rules that may be ineffective for you personally, and yet you still want to remain a monastic. And many people th- see being a monastic as being about following rules. So. Um, this is a this is a I think the heart of many of the issues that Westerners have with adopting spiritual practices that may have come in some cases or have been inspired by non-Western teachers and traditions, etc. But also some from from uh, indigenous that are being rediscovered in the West as well. So so. I don't have a specific question for you, but I'm wondering, you know, as I as I discuss this in the way that, that I just did, if if there's anything that is coming up for you to respond to. Um, actually, that's a very good topic to ask because I have been struggling with that for quite a while. Mm-hmm. I know in my heart 
that my life is dedicated to this journey and as such I want to be a monastic. Uh, on the other side um, there are all these rules that I supposed to hold and it's interesting because I have been given certain amount of rules and then or the, the vows that I took and then everybody else gave me all these other vows, community, the uh, society who says, well, as a nun, you should do this, this, this and this. And I never even took any of those vows. Mm. So there is kind of the unwritten rules as a nun on how you should act and how you should be. And... Um, which is not really part of the vows I took. So, you, so for example, if, if I'm understanding you, you did not take a vow not to sing, right? That's, no, I took a vow not to sing. Oh, I you took did. a vow not to, yeah. Um, oh, okay. not, of course, the basic thing, not to drink and uh, right, right, all right. of the, that. The, the, the but first the five sing precepts. and dance is actually one of my It uh, is one of, it is one oh, of my okay. vows. Okay. And I had to really look at that and what it meant. And I, the way I interpret it is that it means you're not going into a bar and do beer songs. And mm-hmm. you're not going out there and just, you know, live your life on a very uh, superficial way. Mm. But when, when you do somatic movements and you do dance and express it from inside and when you bring the song and the chants out from your heart, mm-hmm. for me that is, that is joy. Whenever you create joy or you sing with a child, mm-hmm. you know, things like that, for me these are very important aspects of life. We, yeah. have, a, we have a good friend, uh, Regina Sarah Ryan, who was a Roman Catholic nun for a number of years and then... Um, she ended up marrying uh, someone who is a, a man who was had been a Roman Catholic priest, and um, and they eventually became uh, devotees of a, uh, a, a spiritual teacher, and um, and she would be an example of someone who followed the followed rules like you're describing and had vows such as you're describing, and and followed another set of um, precepts or admonitions later that included that that kind of self-expression that you're talking about exploring. Um, And and yet you are, uh, I guess the question I have for you is, is Lama Lina supporting you in in some of in some of the stuff that you're explore, exploring it, because it's clear from the first hour the way you spoke of her that you have a lot of respect and affection for her um, so I'm wondering I'm wondering how that relationship is going in terms of this these new directions that you're exploring actually Lama Lina has been extremely supportive of me of what I'm doing and mm-hmm. um, uh, last time I saw her, actually, you know, the time before I saw her, I told her that I'm doing these somatic practices with the Hendrix Institute. I'm studying with them. And usually, you know, that's not really looked up that positively within the Tibetan tradition to go into more psychological expressions. Mm-hmm. And um, she listened to me. She listened to my argument why I'm studying that. And she ended up telling me, you know, now officially, you're a teacher. You know, so that was her response to huh? me. Um, very supportive, 
Mm -hmm. I felt like she realized that I'm now that I'm making my own decisions now and that I'm really but but you know I feel what is right for me and following that mm -hmm. and um we have actually a very positive relationship and I feel I can go and talk with her about anything mm -hmm. um, yeah so so I'm really really grateful it has been such a change to have a teacher like her actually I needed to learn how to respond to her because I was afraid to express myself with a lot of those other teachers sure. because uh, either they screamed at me or they told me uh, you know just go and practice or or you don't know anything um, you know so I, I never really felt there was a lot of really positive feedback from most of the teachers that I had mm -hmm. um, but with Lama Lina I literally had to learn to express what I think and that's what she wants and so um, it took me some time actually to learn that hmm. and I'm very grateful so, so I'm interested in the, the context you said that now you're a teacher um, was that conferring a uh, um, an acknowledgement of uh, that now there's you're following and you're taking the you're, you're taking the meaning and the intent of the teachings as opposed to a student who Mm -hmm. really just follows uh, uh, literally the teachings because they don't have a broad enough context to understand what they're for. Um, yes, probably because I also follow my heart. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the most important part is that you need to, you know, the, despite other people have a different opinion, that you may still go ahead and do what you think in your heart is the best thing to do. Um, I think that definitely is an important aspect. And I'm really grateful that I have that relationship with her. Uh, and I still support her. I go to her events when I can. I actually do some webcasting for her when I can. Um, so, uh, and I'm involved with other things from her as well. So I'm really happy to have that relationship. But it's not like a disciple-student where the, uh, the, stu the, the teacher is up here and the student is down here. And it's that unequal kind of, of relationship um, um, yes she's absolutely has so much more knowledge and, and I just admire where she comes from and how she teaches but I don't feel less I don't feel mm -hmm. you know and, and, and I think that has been important for me to finally find that space so, so I'm, I'm interested then uh, to, to hear you talk a little bit about uh, the teaching work that you do I know in the bio uh, you work with small groups of people and work with people one-on-one -on -one at this point. Mm -hmm. So w what kind of teaching activities do you engage in now? And, and put Mostly one-on-one -on -one right now. Every so often I get an invitation to do some teaching, usually at somebody's house. And so I will do some of that. I'm also planning to do, we'll probably go via internet mm -hmm. and uh, set up my own groups and and do some of that. You know, in, within these teachings, it's kind of more, um, you know, everybody's on a different place and different people need different practices. Um, you can do some general teaching, but then when, you, when really somebody wants to be on the journey, then you need to adjust it more one-to-one. -one. Yeah. You know, and so that's for me, I, I rather want to do that. And I rather want to not have a lot of mass than, than but but really have a few, but really working with them. And and you would, uh, in the internet example, you would like uh, Skype with people, that sort of thing. Zoom. I prefer Zooming. 
Oh, I don't know that app. <laughs> it, it doesn't go through Microsoft. <laughs> Zoom, oh yeah, Zoom goes through everything. Oh, no, I mean, it, what I'm saying is it's not owned by Microsoft. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, I yeah, I don't know. Okay. It's independent. But, but um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm interested then, uh, w when you work with someone one-on-one, -on -one, is, is there an element of teaching and instructing the meditation practice, but also then an element of really dialogue and exploration of like where where those cracks are that you talked about earlier. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and so that's also where then um, having small seminars or getting people together and teach them some of the whereabouts or how, are, how abouts um, to play. Um, but yes, absolutely, you know, we, we have a lot of times similar issues that we are insecure about or we're running into the same problems over and over and over again. Um, and the whole idea is not to put yourself down for that, but really, you know, I, I notice I do that same thing over and over again and what's happening here and then maybe, you know, where do I feel this in my body? You know, is there a connection? Because our body is an expression of the divine as well. So is that, uh, is that a feeling in the body, um, is this something that you're picking up from the somatic training that you're doing? Uh, yes, absolutely. Because within the Tibetan tradition, I, there is literally not much in that. It's really quietness, sitting down, yeah. just watching your mind. Um, and I feel that... And I think that also works better with Westerners. We kind of are so much more body connected, uh, individualized. And so it's kind of good to, and I have found that within my own life, that, you know, there's certain kind of symptoms that I may have, and that's actually just a, a, a flag that something else is not right. Yeah, we, we know some uh, uh, teachers who, and, and uh, people of therapeutic practices who speak about, you know, there's now more like somatic uh, yoga and more, this idea is coming in, in into play a lot more uh, mm -hmm. uh, in, in our own tradition, the, the idea of bringing attention and awareness to the body is a, a, a big piece because it's the path to disassociate or disidentify with the mental narrative or construct that's driving the particular energetic manifestation of the body. You know, in a, in a traditional way, we know that we have an issue. And that we, so we're trying to pray over it, we're trying to be good, we're trying to, you know, all these different things, trying to make adjustments and changing habits. But yet this, this uh, certain kind of habits, like we react, we get angry about certain reactions, always show up over and over again. And then we just try harder traditionally to make a change with that. However, when we're noticing when we think of these reactions that we're having and we don't really like them as much we want to make a change but when i think of them and i feel where they're at in my body and i feel them okay i have pain in my shoulder when i think about that and then what's happening with that pain do i have any association any memories that may show up and i see this girl that may be three years old and something happened and then you're connecting that with the pain, with that action that you're doing over your whole lifetime and you're trying to just pray over it and change it. Well, when you can see that little girl and you're appreciating that little girl who whatever happens at the time and that little girl is three years old and you say, yes, you needed to do that action, 
um, because that's you try to survive. And so I appreciate you and I love you. But right now, that was a commitment you made then. Now we don't need that anymore. Mm. Now, what is my new commitment? Right now, I want to make a different commitment. What is my new commitment? What is my first action step to fulfill that commitment? But you're not putting that three-year-old girl down. You are acknowledging it. You're acknowledging her. You're appreciating her. And know that those habits were created because of survival. Mm -hmm. And so with that, it's not a negative. Again, you're not putting yourself down. It was necessary then, but it's not necessary now. And so you're making then those changes, but it was based on your research from your own body. Your own body told you, your own body has that memory where things come from. And that way you can release certain kind of habits much easier. And you can do that with movement, the different forms of movement who bring that out. And, And that you then really can work with them, release them, and then work for something that is much more coming from your heart. That you need now. Got it. Do you um, see then uh, in working with uh, people in the West, are there particular challenges that a Western spiritual practitioner has? Is it is it around these kinds of uh, unresolved I, issues? I feel there is a lot of spiritual bypassing going on. Yeah. Um, especially with, with very strong practitioners. Um, that they, you know, they, they want to change and they pray over it, but they don't really want to acknowledge um, what was happening in the past, uh, you know, that, that things just, we just pray over it and it will disappear. But what I see a lot of times is that it just go deeper. And, uh, and then you're just trying harder. And the more you're trying harder, the more you're tightening up. Yeah. And the whole idea is to release and to open up to open up the heart and 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 with that you open up the mind and you open up the view but when you tighten up things just become much more one-pointed and 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 really not relaxed and the whole thing about buddhism is to relax into it to let go you know and not to tighten up So, but I, I like to actually go back to what you ask about rules. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about rules and that, that was a quite a big struggle for me because, uh, you know, should I do this or not? There is one of the big rules that Lama Lina teaches. And when you look at something, whether you should do it or not. And this is actually a very simple rule. Is does, it, does it open your heart? Or does it close your heart? You know, we all have rules, and sometimes rules need to be broken. And you know that the right thing to do is something that it, you shouldn't do. As example, we all know, most of a lot of people know the story about the monk who not supposed to touch women. And mm. he had a younger monk with him, and he lifted up a woman who tried to cross the river and couldn't. And he lifted her up, carried her over, put her down, and moved on. Well, he isn't allowed to touch women. You know, but he knew that was the right thing to do. And the younger monk, you know, after a while said, but your master, you, you touched a woman. How could you do that? And, and the master said, well, yeah, but I put her down and you still carry her. You know, so um, I think that's, that's what I'm talking about, opening the heart and see what is right for you. 
And sometimes, you know, so that's where I'm making the decision. Is it right for me to do movements? Is it right for me to do, um, to use my body? And is it right for me to sing? You know, when I, when I feel that is right, I will do it. You know, but yeah, you won't find me in a beer garden. You know, I won't do that kind of stuff. But, yeah. but when it opens up the heart, and that is really the key point to church, is that the right thing to do? I remember a, someone told me that uh, Daffrey John had an inquiry for uh, his students, which was uh, uh, to ask the question, avoiding relationship. So every time, you know, you look at something, you know, it's like, am I avoiding relationship? Am I avoiding opening up and being in connection? And so it's interesting yeah. that, because that, that, that's, the way you describe that is um, uh, powerful in the, in the, and it's, and it's, but it's also an advanced practice because you have to have, as Rob was saying, talking about discernment before, one has to have a kind of discernment because that, that formulation for an early stage practitioner is also something that becomes a... Uh, a possible, and even for advanced practitioners, it can become a uh, basis for self-deception. And you know, there's a cer- certainly when we see teachers going astray and in, uh, in all sorts of different contexts, you know, they could easily tell themselves, "Well, this feels uh, this feels right. This, this you know, uh, this is opening the heart, or this is being spontaneous." So it's an interesting balance, and I, I, I'm I'm just interested in how you. Um, uh, ride that fine uh, uh, razor's edge, as it were, between uh, allowing the heart to uh, express and opening versus, uh, you know, a feeling that's being born out of uh, maybe a sublimated identification, uh, you know, being expressed. Um, That's where practice is important and keeping the practice up, you know. as long as I am in the heart and in, within that energy flow, there is a difference to know whether that is really just my own selfish desires um, or whether that is really something I need to do. There is a difference. And when I really have the commitment to, 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 to the journey and that's what I want and that's what I'm focusing on, I think um, when I keep that, um, that in my mind and keep that in my practice, I think I can be aware of that. It is good that you have a teacher. I'm happy I have Lama Lina and I can converse with her when I'm not sure about something and I will know I will get a straight answer from her because she's definitely straightforward and that's why I appreciate her so much. She will tell me straightforward, you know, that's not good or that's not right um, or I would try to do it, you know, maybe in a different way. Um, and and so I definitely, when I'm not sure, I would definitely uh, get feedback from her but, or, or even discuss it with her. I am doing this, you know, um, or, and also explain why I'm doing it, like taking those classes, um, starting with the Hendricks Institute. I knew from my heart I need to do that because I, there are certain issues I couldn't move within myself, and I tried for years, and, um, and I felt um, going more somatic, I was able to do that, and so I ended up studying with them, and actually within a short time I was able to move them. And so uh, I know the benefit of that, and, um, and, and I, kn- I knew that that was the right thing for me to do. And I ended up telling her, and she was very supportive, you know. But I will tell 
I, I feel there is nothing I, I, we cannot discuss. Mm-hmm. And I think that is very important to have somebody that you can talk about, with, you know, about what's going on um, in, on your journey, yeah. who, is, who is straightforward, you yeah. know, who doesn't have interest in you. In that, in the point in, that in manipulating, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah or, or yeah, yeah. I mean, so uh, go ahead, you go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to change the topic. So, if, so if you want to finish a thought, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, um, um, it's it's more a return to the to, to the subject of play, um, because um, which is of course connected to what you're talking about in terms of the rules, um, but. Um, you know, you've been talking about empowerment, uh, excuse me, um, uh, uh, somatic embodiment. Um, as I've, you know, been listening to you, that that makes a lot of sense based on your um, your ex- the experience that you've described, uh, having uh, grown up with and uh, lived through. And there's another area that that strikes me is is that that where I've seen opportunity in my own practice to to inject the idea of play into a uh, a rules bound arena uh, which is which is in the um, use of imagination so um and i and the reason it came up for me is because i've i've heard some of the other Tibetan practitioners that we've had on the show talk about the use of imagination in, you know, not just sitting meditating, but actually, um, you know, creating images and and engaging in practices with the with the creation imaginative creation of images in your head, right? And I've also had the experience um, um, of having um, folks uh, described to me ways in which imagination can actually be a, f- uh, a form of play that opens up the 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 uh, the heart in a way that that I didn't appreciate the rules I was following was preventing uh, and and so and so in addition to the somatic work I'm wondering if you have done anything with the use of imagination in the application of this idea of play that you were that, that you were ad, that you've been advocating for so strongly um, let, it'd be yeah. fun fun to hear about that yeah I mean my imagination you know our, our whole life is kind of uh, where we put it into a straight jacket or having it more wild mm-hmm. our whole life is created by thought imagination is just thought mm-hmm. it's something we create I think as long we know that's what I'm doing we are, our, our life mostly run by, by our thoughts mm-hmm. that includes imagination whether it's positive you know when, when something happens and somebody cuts me off my imagination Imagination is this and that and that. That's all imagination. Mm-hmm. There is no no basis to that. It's all just imagination. So why not use imagination in a positive way? Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's you know we're we're telling a story. There's all kind of different games. One of the games is you're taking like four or five different words out of a bag, and I have and you have, and then you start a story. It's all imagination, and then I'm. Mm-hmm. 
continue the story from you and then you continue the story and so on and so on. It's all imagination, but with that, it's a game. It frees yourself up. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I, you know, but we also have to all, uh, always remember that anything coming from our mind, it's all created. It's a thought, it's a past, it's a common goal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not something that is solid. You know, the only thing, the ground is what's solid. Everything, anything within that ground is created. It shows up and it disappears. Imagination shows up and disappears. Mm -hmm. But by itself, it's not wrong. It's where everything is built up of imagination. We wouldn't have a a radio studio without it. We wouldn't have a radio period. We wouldn't have a phone. We wouldn't have a building. We wouldn't have food. It's all created by imagination. Well, that's one of the things that I think people where people misinterpret some of the great spiritual teachers like the Buddha as if as if you could eliminate thought or something like that from from the human brain not that not that there aren't ways to disidentify with thoughts um, but um, but I think that often there's a um, a misunderstanding that the admonition is to is in fact to be without to exist without thoughts and yet you know i think the key to all that is not to not to have thoughts but to realize that the thoughts have been created yeah. they're a common mm-hmm. goal and mm-hmm. while we have the thoughts seeing that so we're not grabbing them and holding on to them and then when we do that we're making ourselves so small like mm-hmm. the thoughts and yet we are so much more we are literally everything you know mm-hmm. everything anything that you want it's there but as soon we 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 grabbing on to something we're making ourselves small and we're losing uh, imagination mm-hmm. so imagination it's it's allowing possibilities right. you know and without possibilities nothing will go anywhere yeah it sounds like um you know the, in a sense it's it, the part of practice is to recognize the unconscious functioning of imagination, and then to yeah. bring it under uh, the realm of choice. Yes. So that we can choose to imagine, we can choose to play, we can choose what we create. Absolutely. And be aware that it's a common goal. It's not something that is always there. You know, it's uh, all our thoughts, all our, our belief system, all our concepts, it's constantly changing. We are constantly changing. You have a cup of tea. You're not the same person anymore. You have, uh, you know, whatever happens, every little thing changes who we are. And with that changes our thoughts and changes that, that, that creates an experience which changes our whole experience. You know, it's all in change. It's all in flux. So the, the, I think the more we can just realize that and open up to what the flow is and then go with the flow and the flow itself is open-hearted and caring and, and, and very creative. And I think a lot of the artists, they have that in to, 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 to that energy, you know. And so you can get that through dance, you can get that through, through song, you can get that, you know, there's all these ways you can connect to that flow, to that energy. And that's mm-hmm. what, that liveliness, 
You know, that's where we can um, experience the divine because we are all the divine. We are not looking at it. We are not, um, you know, that there is the divine and, 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 and here I am. You are, we are all the divine. And that, that liveliness is what we can recognize the divine expression. So you know? the so so the um, so creativity is an inherent quality of the divine, and when we engage in it uh, and cultivate it ourselves, we are moving into that realm. Absolutely. Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And the more we free, freeing ourselves from from what we are so much holding on to the way it should be or needs to be, mm-hmm. that's what hinders us to open up. Right. And that's just a combination of belief system concepts and ideas that we have created, that culture puts on us. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not who we are. I absolutely agree. And the tricky part is we all we we do still need structure in there needs to be structure in the world there needs to be structure in practice like you're committed to being uh, a monastic mm-hmm. you know that's a structure that's a that's a commitment um and so so then the uh the play is to find the ways in which those apparently disparate elements of of um, the way we experience our lives, um, not be in conflict, but actually support each other. Yes, yeah. And, and the, I'm not saying structure is bad. Structure also has to be created, mm-hmm. but it needs to be in a way that is supportive mm-hmm. of, the ex, of the divine expression. So, so structure, within structure, one can play. Yes. Because even any game we play, uh, even has, uh, has e- rules. it has rules, and, yes. and uh, the rules we we also can recognize that the rules are not permanent. They're yes. they're impermanent and they change. But but we can enter into a game like in a way you're playing the game of a Tibetan monastic. And um, yes. And there are rules, and and within that you have to negotiate some of the boundary conditions of that. But but yes. it's still. But you take that in order to play the game. You have to take the rules seriously. And I do. I do yeah. take the rules seriously. So that's why I, you know, I really had to research what feels right for me, what doesn't feel right for me. And I decided that yes, I still will sing and dance, but it has to be as an expression of the divine. It has to be, in a, you know, not just as. Um, you know, going out and drink, which I don't do anyway, but, but you know, in a way that is just very, um, uh, n- not really very thoughtful or skillful, but really coming out from a way of rejoicing in life, rejoicing in, in, in the movement. You know, um, I think that the, in, um, the motivation behind things is really what makes a difference. Mm-hmm. You well, know? There, well, there you're back to Buddhism. Yeah, right that, there. that, there's, a, there's a Buddhist foundational principle. Well, this is a rule for any, anybody, really, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, I'm realizing, yes, I'm, I'm not Tibetan, and, and I really appreciate the teaching that I received. And I think I definitely, I'm a monastic, I'm dedicated to this life. Um, but I'm really in some ways much more a mystic 
real interested in going right. deeper and researching, you know. I feel like I'm a person who goes, instead of going out into the universe, I'm going inside and explore so, all these worlds. So, so this is an interesting distinction that I think is uh, uh, bears exploring briefly, which is monastic versus mystic. Uh, both imply a dedication in some form or another to a spiritual path. Um, but I guess you could be a monastic without being a mystic. Yes, yeah, so some monastics, their job is to cook for the monastery. Some monastics, you know, they're dedicated their lives to, to help the structure. Right. You know, and some monastics, they go into the cave and stay there for the rest of their lives. And you can be a mystic without being a monastic. And you can be a mystic without being a monastic. And in, in uh, India, you know, in the uh, community that I went to, they have uh, yogic monastics and they have monastery monastics. And so I'm much more considering myself a yogic monastic. Um, because there's, right now there's not a community structure that you're engaged in, right? Um, that's correct right yeah. now, but um, there may be some people interested in doing the same thing. And I have, I'm building up the structure where we actually can do that, the Lotus Mountain Gompa. Um, it's actually a legal church, and so we can actually, and the idea eventually that we may have actually a community of people who want to follow that pathway, whether as monastics or whether as just yogis or yoginis, that would be wonderful. We can support each other on that journey. Yes. Is, there, is, is there, as you're um, envisioning that, does yogi... Uh, a yogi or yogini mean they're not living with others in a, as we commonly understand a monastic to do, or is there some other distinction? Um, not all monastics living in communities. Um, I think that the big difference between a yogic monastic and a uh, monastery monastic is one of them has valves uh, of uh, celibacy and the other one doesn't. Okay. So that's kind of the big distinction, but they're both dedicated to their journey. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that's an interesting dis distinction that um, in the West we don't quite have that model yet um, uh, in, in the common culture, which is someone who is, for whom their spiritual journey is the most important um, theme in their life, as opposed to uh, it's a... Uh, their weekend activity or it's their uh, avocation uh, but when you look at how someone organizes their life you just you determine you can find out what's the most important thing mm -hmm. and so like both of us uh, uh, worked with a, a teacher and uh, operate a meditation community and it's we, I think we both would describe that that's the most important thing in our lives I would consider myself a mystic in that in that sense because that's that's where my attention goes, hence the name of the show. Uh, and yet, I uh, also function in the world. I have a yeah. job in a corporation. I uh, you know, yeah. and I spend a lot of time right now in that guise. And yet, part of that practice is to recognize that there isn't any separation. You can find the design the divine in corporate America just as easily as you can find it as a at a seashore, even though its manifestation is different. Absolutely. And and you know, for me a yogi person is actually somebody who is dedicated uh, to the practice, but it doesn't mean that they're not working. It means that, that their life importance is their spiritual journey. So what you also consider a mystic, um, I also consider a yogi. Yeah. So it's kind of the same the same word, yes.
Right, and I, and in the in the Western tradition, we don't have as much. There's not as much of a recognized place for people like that yet. Yeah. There, that that may yes. change. I mean, the, in the Christian tradition, there is to some extent, but generally, you have to do the full monastic thing for that to um, really to, ha- to find a space that's understood by people. Yeah, that's why I actually envisioned that, you know, under the um, Gompa, we can actually have some community spirit, and maybe not right on the beginning, but at least we can, we all kind of connect and support each other on the on the practice. And I see that these practices may be widely different between each practitioner because of the different paths, but because we are so few, um, in the Western area, it's nice to, to come together and still support each other. Yeah, for sure. Well, we're coming towards the end of our um, time period of, of this conversation, but I'm wondering if there's any anything that you want to uh, tell our audience about this project, um, uh, the Gompa project uh, that you were just describing. Is there any an additional and invitation you, you would uh, mention? And how, and how people can uh, uh, find you to uh, 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 if they want to connect and uh, work with you. Yeah, the, um, the easiest way is via email. It's Arnie Palmo, A-N-I-P-A-L-M-O, at gmail.com. Um, I have a website, but it's still in progress. So, um, so for that's now, the email is the, the email easiest. usually is the easiest, and I will connect. And we, you know, depending on what people's goals are, we can get together. We can um, have, you know, we can organize a meeting, a gathering of other people, or we can do a one-to-one and just see where the journey is and what they wish where they would like to go and mm-hmm. see whether I can help them on that path. So it comes into, you know, everybody has a little bit of a different path, and I'm gladly being there to help. All right. Well, great. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Mystical Positivist. We've had a lot of fun, and uh, we've played, it seems to me. Uh, so that fits with uh, uh, what you were telling us about your path. So... Uh, um, all hail play. Yeah, no, it's been it's been a, a great and lively conversation, and we re- appreciate the energy you bring uh, and the passion you bring to uh, uh, the the spiritual journey because I think that that's it's a good demonstration for uh, listeners of of that this isn't you know the spiritual journey is not this serious. Uh, 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 well, it is serious, but not man, but not um, not one-sidedly. solemn. Yeah, not not solemn. Not solemn. It, it, yeah. it is. It, you, what, it can be approached with a spirit of play, uh, and yet with a, uh, a spirit of uh, uh, discernment and uh, uh, you know a serious um, uh, focus. Absolutely, I think the dedication is most important um, to start up with, and then you know it will unfold. It right. will unfold, and there is a part of trust that we just have in, in that we are supported within that journey. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on the Mystical Positivist. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we've been speaking in the studio with Tibetan Buddhist nun Ani Samten Palmo, a monastic at Lotus Mountain Gampa. 
born in Switzerland. She's a student of Lama Lena, a.k.a. Yeshe Ketup, and Lama Wangdor Rinpoche, both teachers of direct mind perception, meditation, and lineage holders of several Tibetan Buddhist traditions. Anila has been a monastic since 2001. She offers one-on-one teachings and sessions with smaller groups. Next week's Mystical Positivist show will feature a recording of a talk that Stuart and I gave at Many Rivers Books and Tea on Thursday, January 3rd along with some additional remarks recorded in the studio after the talk, entitled, To Create and Sustain a Habit of Open-Heartedness, the pre-talk publicity described it this way, quote, The meme of our time is obsession with human perfection. Focusing on perfection, we soon find how pervasively we fall short of our high standards. Unconscious acceptance of this meme leads to fixation on our compulsive habits, faults, and failures, along with the existential despair that asserts compassion and love are simply words people use to manipulate one another. It leads to a growing sense of restlessness operating just below the surface of awareness. For some, redirecting attention towards drugs, video games, careers, or other distractions more or less succeeds in numbing the growing restlessness with the gulf between the ideal and real. Another common strategy to address this restlessness imagines that its resolution will be found in the application of the latest quick-fix technique of mind or body. The industries of personal growth, healing, and transformation focus on consumers seeking immediate change. By so doing, these consumers strive to experience bliss, joy, and satisfaction by attuning themselves to ready-made truths linked to a variety of modalities and practices deriving from spiritual and therapeutic traditions. For such industries, quick fixes are the stock and trade, yet how many customers truly find what they seek? Authentic training in the alchemy of the heart that transforms unconscious habits into food for a genuine expansion of consciousness requires time, commitment, sweat, discomfort, and persistence. It cannot be bought, but must be paid for. Join us for a discussion about about how a sustainable habit of open-heartedness in contrast to a habit of grasping after growth might be created. Tune in for that show on Saturday, January 26th from 4 to 6 p.m. Coming up on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, follow your dread to the mystical heart with the Taiyu Meditation Center staff monthly on the first Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. The next meeting will be uh, February 6th at, uh, at Many Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Story has it that in the very bottom fissure of hell, the deepest recess glowing with unquenchable fires, a simple drain cover lies unnoticed. Find and remove the cover, descend through the narrow drain, and emerge into the highest, most radiant realm of heaven. If this metaphor resonates with something in you, our practice group work that focuses upon follow your dread may resonate still more deeply. No one can be divorced from or denied access to the mystical heart, but to open and then live within the mystical heart of the world and ourselves has a cost. We don't get there by denying, sweeping under the rug, or putting aside the aspects that we dislike of who we have been. The mystical heart receives the light and the dark without judgment. So in our group and individual practice, we seek to cultivate a heart-mind that holds all contents of consciousness simultaneously with discernment and without discrimination. Following your dread is an undertaking best accomplished in the company of fellow travelers and with guidance from others who have gone before. Join us on the first Wednesdays of each month at 7.30 p.m. at Mini Rivers in downtown Sebastopol to learn more about the realistic path to the mystical heart. Coming up in the Thursdays at Many Rivers uh, group, 
meetings on Thursday evenings, Zodiac's Game Night. That's with Mark DiStefano, science teacher, game enthusiast, and creator of the Zodiac's Games. That's this coming Thursday, January 24th at 7.30 p.m. Sebastopol resident Mark DiStefano has created a set of inexpensive and extremely portable games he calls Zodiacs, because most of the game f- uh, games feature playing pieces based on different world Zodiac systems, including the Western Zodiac, the Chinese Zodiac, Native American, etc. Mark will be present in person to guide participants in learning the games. His skill as a school science teacher is evident in his remarkable balance of patience and enthusiasm. Join us for a fun evening. Thank you for joining us once again for the Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday. We leave you with music from a CD called Short Tales for a Vial, English music of the 17th century for Viola da Gamba and Lyra Vial, performed by Vittorio Gielmi. This piece by William Corkine is called Whoop, do me no harm, good man! Exclamation point. Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs>